Hello, hackers. Welcome to another episode of the Hacker Noon podcast. I'm your host, Amy Tom, and today we are here with Robert Neal, who is the head of experimentation at LaunchDarkly. But before we get into that, just want to give you a quick little antidote on the episode. We are going to talk about experimentation, which is super interesting to me because over the course of my marketing career or in content creation and marketing, I've used experimentation in different capacities, mostly in A-B testing for different ads or different creatives. And it's been so helpful for me to get to know my audience better and to understand what they like and what they don't like. So I'm very excited to talk to Robert today about different kinds of experimentation and what experimentation really means. Podcast. Thanks for joining the podcast, Robert. It's great to have you. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I would like to start off with a hopefully simple question for you about what does experimentation really mean to you? Yeah, there's probably like a more technical definition and then what people generally think, and especially in industry, when people say experimentation, they generally mean something like A-B testing, where you're testing mm -hmm. out two versions of something and trying to figure out which one's better. But there are a lot of different types of experimentation. And fundamentally, the thing that we all have in common is that you're randomizing traffic. So I'll try not to be too technical. In um, academia, it's called a randomized controlled trial, an RCT. And the idea is that in order to make causal inferences, which is what you want to get from experimentation, you need to randomize the traffic so that there's no bias in your data. So mm -hmm. really, the fundamental thing they have in common is this randomization technique, but there's a bunch of different types of experimentation, like A-B testing or some stuff that you might do in like machine learning that are experimentation in the more general sense. Okay. And these randomized control trials slash A-B testing, you are presenting option A and then option B, and you're giving it to your audience or intended market and then randomizing it so you don't know who's getting what and just seeing which result was the best one, right? Exactly, yep. Okay, cool. So you're the head of experimentation at LaunchDarkly, which seems like a very interesting title. What led you to become the head of experimentation and how do you start doing that? Yeah, I'll try to give a shortened version uh, <laughs> to that question. But I was a software engineer for a, early in my career. And then I got into psychology and cognitive science. And then I actually took a detour and started doing user experience research for a while. So more like applied cognitive science. And as part of that work, I got really interested in the statistics underlying experimentation because I would run experiments to answer questions about which user interface was better or why people behave the way they did when they were exposed to different user interfaces. And then I had an opportunity to get back into software engineering and do experimentation. And it was really just a great fit for me. So I really delved deep into more like the statistical side of things. And I already had an engineering background. So combining the data engineering with data science uh, was a really good fit. And I've been doing that for many years now. And now here I am running experimentation at LaunchDarkly. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that background helped you when it comes to experimentation? Yeah, certainly some aspects of it. A, a lot of psychology research, or most of it pretty much, is based on these randomized control trials. And I think one of the things that helped me most, actually, is the sort of fall of psychology. In the 
I don't know, 2010s maybe, or maybe earlier than that, there was this replication crisis in psychology where all of these popular psychology studies wouldn't replicate. So they couldn't, they performed the same experiment over again and they didn't get the same results. Mm -hmm. And what they found out was that psychologists were just doing the experimentation all wrong. Uh, and that led me to try to understand statistics better so I could do better research. And so ultimately, yeah, that, I think that's what led me to being able to run better experimentation in the industry. Interesting. And what about this industry draws you in? Oh, yeah, a lot of things. So one, one thing that's sort of unique about experimentation in the engineering world is there are a lot of different pieces to it that are, are interesting. So it's not just strictly a data science problem and it's not strictly a data engineering problem. In addition to those, there are other types of problems like randomization and speed. So imagine that you're running an experiment on, you may have experience going to a website and then seeing like the content flash. It's one thing and then it flashes and becomes something else because they're running an experiment and it takes some time for that experiment to load. So those sort of optimization problems are things that you have to solve in experimentation to make sure that you're not biasing your users. If they see some content and then some other content flashes, that might affect their behavior and that might bias your experiment. So mm. you're solving problems up and down the stack of technology. So that, that's really interesting. I guess the other big part is in school, I, I studied philosophy. So I got my undergrad and graduate degrees in philosophy. And there's a lot of things in philosophy that are sort of problems in experimentation too. What should you believe? So those are epistemological questions. Philosophy of probability. What do these probabilities mean? How should we interpret them? So it's just like a perfect fit for my interest and background. Yeah. You seem like the kind of guy that likes to figure things out. <laughs> yeah. Unpeel all of the layers. What's really yep. behind the curtain. Okay, interesting. When you graduated from school, did you envision becoming the head of engineering or what were you what kind of path did you think you were going down? Yeah, I was actually more interested in staying in academia. Pretty much as someone who's studying philosophy, that's really your only realistic job opportunity. But through like just some crazy circumstances, I was lucky enough to end up in places where I was able to apply the sort of training that you get in philosophy, which is a scientific, logical training to, um, to my work. And yeah, definitely did not expect to end up running experimentation at anywhere. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely happy I ended up here. In fact, like if you think about it, I, I was in school a long time ago. And Back then, there, there were no head of experimentation jobs, really. So yeah, it's a unique opportunity, especially with LaunchDarkly as a software as a service. That wasn't an option, say, 15 years ago to have like mm -hmm. software as a service that was a feature flag management and experimentation tool. Mm -hmm. And you've been working in the tech industry for a while now, right? Mm -hmm. Longer, and Longer than I want to say the number of years for. <laughs> And what was it like then getting into the tech industry in this kind of capacity? Yeah, for me, there was a pretty steep learning curve because I'd been an uh, engineer for quite a while. But with experimentation, like there's just a, a very large data science component. And that data science component is actually very different than a lot of other data science problems. So like even within data science, you, you have to focus on experimentation. But I was lucky to have some really good mentors that um, were really good teachers and able to help me mm. become somewhat of an expert at uh, experimentation by adding that sort of data science piece onto my um, engineering background. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. And so with your experience in experimentation and UX and UI, what was the thing that surprised you the most about people's behavior online? 
Oh, yeah. I guess the thing that surprises me most is probably how, like, a lot of the research that's coming out of social media with, like, politics. So I probably don't want to get too much mm. into that. But but it is interesting. People behave online a certain way. And it's not how you see people behave offline, like, when you interact yeah. with people. It's like driving a car. People are, are a little bit more likely to be a jerk when they're driving a car than if you're just in line outside of a car in person at the grocery store or something. And I was working at Twitter previously before Launch Darkly. And there's just a lot of interesting research around like, how can we help people have more civil conversations or treat people more like people? It's hard to see pe the person behind the online profile. And there's a lot of really interesting research in that area that I think is going to be super necessary in the next five, 10 years. Yeah, okay, that's so interesting. And this really like, opens my mind to the level of experimentation you can do because I really was anticipating you'd be like the orange button is more popular <laughs> than the blue button so yeah that so what kind of things can you test then open my mind a little bit more to even the possibilities because I obviously have a limited scope here yeah so my sort of view is that you should test everything Mm -hmm. And even saying everything, you still might think there's a limited scope of, oh, every UI change. Or even you might think, let's say I'm updating a machine learning model, like it's a ranking algorithm for, let's say, a Twitter feed. When you're training these algorithms, so you have these data sets that are sort of like old data, and you train your model, and then you test it on the data set, and it performs better than the previous model you had. But you still need to test that out in the wild to find out whether or not it works on data that you didn't train on and you didn't test on. But there's even more possibilities, like the infrastructure changes. So let's say that you're changing from one type of data store to another. So I've done this a few times where like our the database we were using was, say, Vertica, and then we switched to BigQuery. You want to test and make sure that your latency doesn't increase. You don't want results to take longer than they used to return back to your user. Or you want to make sure that the results are the same. Sometimes like there's slight differences in how SQL functions work and maybe the results are not what they used to be. And sometimes that could be better for business or sometimes it could be worse. Mm -hmm. But without that sort of like the, the large amount of data you get from real traffic and like the, all the different ways that users use your system that you couldn't think to write unit tests, it's hard to, to see those things and it's easy to miss them. And even if they're just small effects, those small effects can chip away at your business. And so if you don't know they're there, you don't know that you're slowly chipping away at your own business by doing infrastructure changes or, you know, switching to a different uh, machine learning model or making, even making, uh, sorry, even making small UI changes. So a lot of times people think, oh, this UI change is small, so I don't need to test it. But think about cases where one reason people like experimentation is because a lot of times there's these small UI changes that you make that can have big effects. You could mm -hmm. increase your uh, click-through rate by 10%. But by the principle of symmetry, you could also make a small change that decreases your click-through rate by 10%. And a lot of times we don't think to test everything. So we don't know, maybe we did pull out a change that could have you know, right. decreased our click-through rate by 10%. And maybe with a 10% decrease, you would notice it, but what if it was only half a percent? So maybe you rolled out the small change and it gave you a negative half percent um, drop in your click-through rate. And let's say you did that once a month for 12 months, those add up and you have multiple percentages knocked off your click-through rate but you don't notice it because there's such small changes. And at the mm -hmm. end of the year, you're worse off, but you don't know why. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to that is really just experiment on everything that, that goes out the door. And that's hard for a lot of organizations. And one yeah. of the things that we do at LaunchDarkly 
is make that easy. So if you're using feature flags to roll out your software, then it's very easy to just add metrics onto that. And now you have an experiment. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because I want to dive into this a bit more because you say test everything. And of course you say test everything as the data science, you need all of the data. But in actuality, I think most companies are not testing anything, (laughs) let alone everything. So the barrier to entry in my mind of testing is like resources and people, right? So is that kind of like your experience as well in the industry? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Even at larger organizations that I've worked at, people are like, oh, experimentation is going to add an extra week to our rollout effort. So we're just going to. So there's two things there. One is you need to make tooling that makes it really easy to run experiments. And I think like LaunchDarkly is that type of tool. We had a similar tool at Credit Karma that we built. And basically it made it, you know, almost costless to run experiments. And Mm -hmm. the flip side is like, how much is that data worth to you? Is it worth, uh, let's say it does take you a week of engineering effort. Is the data worth a week of engineering effort? In most cases, it probably is. It, And part of that is you need to plan ahead and say, oh, okay, we have this three-month project and the last week is going to be experimentation. The reason that you want to plan ahead is because when you get to the end of the project and you just want to roll it out, if you say, oh wait, as an afterthought, we need to run an experiment and it's going to take an extra week. That week feels a lot bigger. So that, that can help. Right. There's a lot of things with just building like an experimentation organization that can help. But I, I like my view is tooling is 100% where you should right. invest in making it easier to run experiments because you want it to really be something that's, it's just automatic. It comes for free with your development process. Mm-hmm. And what kind of person would I be looking to hire if I wanted someone to run this for me? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it kind of depends. So if you want to use a third-party tool like LaunchDarkly, which you know I, I recommend, of course, then really what you're after is someone who understands like uh, how to run an experimentation program. So it's almost more like a program management type of role, except it's on experimentation. But if you want to build out like experimentation expertise within your company and build your own experiment platform, it, it actually becomes quite complicated for reasons that I talked about uh, earlier with respect to what interests me about experimentation, it's not just like you can hire a data scientist. Um, you need data science, you need data engineering, you need like platform engineering, and you need someone who understands like client side engineering, mm. because there's so many pieces that make up good quality data and fast enough so that you can actually run experiments without your users noticing. That's not something where it's just, we can hire one person and they're going to, build experimentation for us. Um, Companies who do that find out very quickly that they then need like full teams and those teams need to have like multiple roles on them that are very specialized. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, that sounds like maybe a little bit of a sales pitch for just uh, hiring (laughs) a third party um, SaaS. Uh, But it makes sense because you need a lot of resources to be able to build experimentation. I think in my experience, when I've done like any kind of A-B testing, it's because it's already been built into the tool. Like I'm not working at any places that are building their own tool. It's already been something that's included in the analytics platform of whatever I'm using. So that makes sense. Yeah. And okay, cool. So over the course of your career, then I'm sure you've done many different experiments. What has been like the most exciting or eye-opening thing that you've learned through experimentation? Yeah, there are a lot of examples. I'm going to talk about common or a well-known experiment because I think it illustrates a point really well. So 
there's this story about Google testing its search button. And the story goes that they tested every shade of blue and the designers were up in arms about it. The designers were like, no, we want to pick the blue that fits our branding the best. It was easy enough to actually test every possible shade of blue and figure out which one caused people to click it the most or end up maybe clicking on ads the most or whatever the, whatever the metric of success was. The reason that's such a useful example and like it has so much teaching opportunity is because it really talks about, um, I'm going to get a little bit technical again, exploring the parameter space of the thing mm -hmm. that you're testing. And so one, one mistake that a lot of people make, and I, I, maybe I shouldn't call it a mistake, this is how experimentation started in industry and even how it's done a lot of times in academia, is they just say, okay, we have this new thing that we built, let's test it versus the old thing that we built. So you have an A and a B. The problem is that um, maybe the idea behind B was good, but you just got some of the details wrong. So really what you wanna do is you wanna test all the things that are similar to B. So you want like a B subscript one, a B subscript two, B subscript three. You wanna test actually as many of these possible options because it's very unlikely that you happen to pick the one that's going to increase the metric. So it's and really the, B, but it's like B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and sometimes that's hard to do because especially with people who are building products, they feel very strongly that, oh yeah, I've got this great product vision. I know this is going to work. And so I'm going to test it. And um, sometimes even if the data says it doesn't work, they're like, oh, maybe we'll, we'll push it out anyway. But really you want to test the entire space of possibilities or as much of it as you can and then find the one that's optimal. And a lot of times it's gonna be better than the one that you envisioned as being the best. Mm -hmm. And it is even down to the shade of blue that you use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, would you, so for experimentation, how much input do you need for the experimentation to work? Because Google obviously can test every single shade of blue because there's thousands and millions of searches happening all of the time. So they have so much data that they can test. So what level of data input do, do you require for experimentation? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And that's another thing where um, a lot of times uh, organizations tend to be um, a little hesitant to get into experimentation because they're like, oh, we don't have enough data. We'll never get statistical significance. Or we've tried experimentation and we didn't get statistical significance. So it doesn't really fit our organization. So at, at LaunchDarkly, we're actually, and a lot of organizations are moving this direction, moving toward using Bayesian statistics and making decisions probabilistically. And the idea here is that I'll use some technical terms and then try to maybe explain them. But like, if you're in a scenario where you have no switching costs, so let's say you're changing a button color, it doesn't cost anything to switch from one button color to the next. The optimal decision is just picking whichever one has the highest probability of winning. You don't need to reach statistical significance. Even if you have a 51% probability of being better for one variant and a 49% for the other, you should pick the 51%. And if you make those sorts of decisions over time, you're going to you're going to win. This is just like the casino, right? The casino mm -hmm. wins 51% of the time. And if they do that consistently over long enough periods of time, they're obviously going to make a ton of money. Um, so companies really should make decisions this way as well. And it's easy enough when there's no switching costs, when there are switching costs, it's a little bit more difficult. But one of the benefits here is that you could actually make these decisions with very limited amounts of data. They're all 
kinds of scenarios where you have limited amounts of data. Maybe you're like B2B, so you have like fewer customers that you can experiment on. Like sometimes you have to experiment on the organization instead of the user. Or you might be a product manager who owns a part of the product that gets very little traffic, even if it's a large company. So with all these scenarios, the idea is even a little bit of data is better. If you can get even just a little bit of data, then you should be able to make a better decision than if you had no data at all. And what about the length of the experiment? Does that play into it as well? It definitely does. The longer you run the experiment, the more confident you could be in the results. But I was running experimentation at Udemy and we would do these three-day marketing campaigns all the time. It would be like Friday through Sunday. And we needed to figure out what the best version of the marketing campaign was before the marketing campaign was over. Because it would be like, let's say, Mm -hmm. let's say it was a Father's Day campaign. You can't use that for next week's marketing campaign. So you actually need to, while you're running the experiment, figure out what the best one is so that you can apply that to all the rest of the the people who experienced that that weekend. And so this is a case where something like a multi-armed bandit is good because as it's getting, as data is coming in, it actually increases traffic to the best performing variant. So by the end of your campaign, it's optimally assigning traffic to the best variants. So Mm -hmm. even with these very, short windows of time, you can still make optimal decisions. And that's something that would be built into your testing tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm, Interesting. And so when we talk about A, B, then can it really be A, B, C, D, E, F, G while you're running? Yeah, ideally. Yeah. 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 And as you start to think about experimentation as like this optimization problem for some of these types of experiments, then you could also as the experiment's running, maybe you have an A, B, C, D, E, F experiment. If D's doing poorly, pull it out and then maybe add a G while it's running. Mm. You don't have to have this very rigid, I have to run this A, B test for four weeks and then make a decision. And then after that, run a different variation for another four weeks. Uh, you can yeah. be a little bit more dynamic and take advantage of the learning as you're going along. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay. I want to ask more about using experimentation in different fields that I'm not as familiar with. So marketing, obviously, I understand like you test one ad versus another ad versus one image versus another image for your creatives. So what about in like a software sense? How does that work? Yeah. So like with marketing or with a lot of um, UI changes, you're often optimizing for something like click-through rates or revenue Mm -hmm. or something like that. So with depending on what part of the software stack you're touching, a lot of times you're actually trying to avoid hurting certain metrics. So you might Mm want to, maybe you don't want to hurt latency, or maybe you want, you don't want to increase error rates. So this is something you see a lot where it's like, you're running this experiment, but really what you're testing is, I don't want my error rates to increase by more than, you know, half a percent, or I don't want latency to increase by more than 20 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And these are actually called um, non-inferiority tests. And the idea Mm -hmm. is that rather than trying to increase a metric, you're actually trying to make sure that your metric doesn't get any worse than it already is. Okay. Um, Yeah. So it's also still an AB test. It's just the statistics that you use are a little bit different. Yeah. And with something like um, a feature flag tool or parameterization, you're also thinking about parameterizing your code in such a way that you can more easily explore different configurations. You, you could do things like explore how well your software performs if you're using three servers with 128 gigabytes of RAM versus five servers with 64 gigabytes of RAM. 
So this is right. parameter tuning where you're saying, okay, what is the optimal configuration of my software? And maybe it's, maybe the goal is to like decrease costs for your infrastructure. Okay. Yes. These are things that I would have never thought about because I just don't have the same developer mind. But when I was thinking about this, I thought maybe it would be even like more complicated of like the features that you roll out. So for example, I don't know. If you have a product and there is like a kid version and an adult version, then you'd have to run different kinds of experiments and then push out different products for different age groups as well. Have you had experience doing that kind of thing too? Yep. Yeah. Depending on how your product is structured, that might take different forms. It might just be like the audience that you're assigning to your experiments. So if you're using a tool like LaunchDarkly, you could say, if the user is under 18, then apply this experiment to them. And mm -hmm. if they're over 18, apply this different experiment to them. Mm -hmm. Or it might be something where like you're using a machine learning model and it like optimizes the output for age. Or even if you're using like, there's something called a contextual multi-armed bandit, which could take things into account like age. And so that would be like a multi-armed bandit that's optimizing as it goes along, but it's also looking at the person's age and optimizing for it. There's also things where a lot of times your experiment touches multiple parts of the stack. So it might be mm -hmm. changing the UI, but it might be dependent on something in a service somewhere and then another, say, database somewhere else. And one of the things that you want to be able to do when you experiment is flip a switch so that the experiment turns on in all those places. So right. you, the UI change and the server change and the database change happen at the same time. Right. So a big part of experimentation is like the sort of feature flag management piece where you can flip a switch or like a configuration piece. So a lot of places have like configuration service where it's the same thing. You change the parameter and it changes in all places at once. And so you ensure that your experiment is being in all the places that you need to in order to test your software correctly. Right. Okay. This gives me another question that comes to mind then. How many experiments is too many experiments to run at the same time? Yeah, that's going to depend on your organization. So part of it is going to be like the surface area of your product and then how many users you have. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I've ever seen an organization run into that as the bottleneck, unless ah. they have <laughs> okay. an experimentation platform that's poorly developed. So I've definitely seen cases where because people built an experimentation platform that limits how many experiments they can run, they're limited. But once you've got the appropriate experimentation platform, it's generally more of a resourcing problem than a traffic or a surface area problem. Um, but like organizations, let's say LinkedIn, run thousands or tens of thousands of experiments concurrently. And I mean, even smaller organizations, when I was at Credit Karma, it was quite a bit smaller and we would run hundreds of experiments at the same time. And we never hit any sort of limit of experimentation. It was really all resourcing. Mm. But what if I'm testing two UI changes at the same time, then how will I know which it, what the traffic is related to which experiment? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great question. There's a few different ways you could do it. So the, the sort of default way and usually the okay way to do it is that if I'm in one UI experiment, I can also be in the other UI experiment. Now, you generally only want to do this if they're like it's a UI for different pages, but let's say they're on the same page. Then actually what you want to do is something called a factorial design. So in experimentation design, one type is called a factorial. And that just means that let's say that you have AB here and you have AB here you actually want to test all the possible combinations. So you want to do AA, 
A, B, B, uh, A, and B. Mm-hmm. And that will actually give you the optimal UI design. So again, it's just thinking about like, the goal is really to find the best combination of things, not to run these individual experiments. And so you can run these factorial designs and they'll actually give you much better outcomes than um, if you ran them independently. Now, sometimes you, you have to run them independently. And then there's something called mutually exclusive experiments where you run them independently. And then you can be sure that those experiments aren't affecting each other. But a lot of times you want to run these overlapping experiments because you really um, don't need to worry too much about interaction effects, which is like a statistical artifact that can happen with overlapping mm-hmm. experiments. Right. So at the end of the day, I can really just say, oh, headline A actually match the best with headline B of the other group. Okay. Yep. Interesting. What is the largest like data set that you've had to deal with? This is really seems like just a lot of data collection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, at Twitter, the team I was on was called Product Insights and Experimentation. And the Product Insights part was actually metrics. So we had petabytes of, of data that we were responsible for. And yeah, it's it can be a lot of it can be a big challenge to try to wrangle that that much data. Like we had a lot of challenges with just infrastructure. But one of the nice things is like the, the sort of flip side, the benefit there is that with that much data, you can actually get a lot of interesting insights out of it. So one mm-hmm. challenge you do have when you run smaller experiments with less data is let's say you want to know what's the difference between users who are in, say, Chile versus, say, Canada. Maybe you just don't have enough users in some of those countries to get those insights. But you know, as your user base grows, then you can actually slice your data and look at unique demographics and maybe tailor the user experience or the software to those demographics. Mm-hmm. Is there such thing as too much data to be using in experimentation? Only because of cost. Yeah. So even at Twitter, like we would work with people who are running experiments to make sure that they're only they're only giving the experiment to the number of users that they need to in order to get the results. Because if you included all of the users on Twitter in an experiment, mm-hmm. uh, doing the data crunching of that is actually very, yeah, very expensive. That's what I was thinking. It seems yeah. just like slow also because you had yep. to parse through so much stuff and there's like millions of Twitter users. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you really want to try to find out what is that the optimal amount of traffic where you don't have to run the experiment too long, but you're not say overloading the data pipelines. Okay. Then how can you ensure then that it's still a randomized trial? So the trick there is actually in the randomization code itself. So it's actually really easy to write bad randomization code. I actually did a, a talk on this recently on just on randomization, because it's actually a, a really challenging topic that's really interesting. But as long as you have, say, even 100 users, maybe even 50 users, you're going to get good randomization. You're not going to be able to cut your data and look at you know different aspects of it. But even with that small number of users, your randomization is going to be good. So think about like some of the the medical trials or psychology studies. Often they're running their experiments with just like 100 people in them. And that's sufficient for randomizing the users. Now, it might be hard to see the effects if they're not very large, but you'll still get a good randomization and you'll know whether or not you have enough information to make decisions. So one of the challenges that you do run into is if the effects are really small and you have small data, it's not going to, you're not going to notice much of a difference. So you might have some data that helps you make a decision, 
but it might not be enough to be overwhelmingly clear what the decision should be. Mm -hmm. But if I say I have like millions of users in my database and I only want to test 10% of America, then I guess there's still a way that that 10% is a random subset of the hundred, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The randomization techniques that a good experimentation system uses will give you those guarantees. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. All right. Thank you very much for teaching me and the rest of the Hacker Noon gang about experimentation. I learned a lot about the different kinds of experiments. I really didn't know. I really truly thought we were going to be like red or blue. <laughs> orange or green because that's all I really know about like A-B testing so it's really interesting to know that there's so many different avenues of experimentation that are possible so thank you very much and yeah, absolutely. if we want to find you and what you're working on online where can we look I'm on Twitter a lot I used to post a lot of stuff about what I was working on although recently I've been just uh posting about local politics. So you might be wary of that, but I do post um, when I give talks or uh, when I write blog posts, I've been writing blog posts on LaunchDarkly recently. So you could check out that blog. Yeah, maybe LinkedIn, follow me. I, I post some stuff there as well sometimes. All right, I will put all of those links in the show note. Thank you, Robert, for joining me. Cool, yeah, thank you. If you like this episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe it, and maybe leave me a cheeky little review. I would also love that. If you want to find Hacker Noon online, you can look at Hacker Noon on all of the socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, check us out there, or visit HackerNoon.com, of course. And as always, stay weird, and I'll see you on the internet. Bye! Afternoon podcast.